America is back. Diplomacy is back. Well, you know what? I mean, come on, come on, okay. We do shift strand Europe. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. Welcome back to War and Peace, a podcast of the International Crisis Group. I'm your host, Hugh Pope, speaking to you from Brussels. My co-host, Olya, is travelling in Russia today and unfortunately could not be with us, so it'll just be me and our two guests. And we're going to discuss today the Western Sahara question. Exactly a year ago, in November 2020, an old conflict on the southwestern edge of Europe burst back into flames. Or so it seemed. After almost 30 years of ceasefire, the pro-independence Polisario Front and Morocco went back to battle stations in the Western Sahara. Now, little real fighting has actually happened yet, and the Western Sahara may seem small. There are less than a million Sahrawis, two-thirds of whom live in the main areas under Moroccan control, and one-third of whom live under Polisario's control, mostly in the Tindouf refugee camp in Algeria. But Western Sahara is the size of Britain, and its fate touches on plenty of issues that rattle Europe. Questions of decolonization, questions of immigration, questions of trade sanctions, and yet another illustration of how it is now often regional states that are dictating the pace of events and not the old capitals of Western Europe. Since the conflict reignited, European states have taken a somewhat timid stance preferring to stress support for the comfortable status quo than to take action. Nonetheless, the new focus on Western Sahara is unsettling many relationships, particularly with Morocco. The conflict has caused particular friction between Morocco and Spain, which in May accused Morocco of showing disrespect after allegations that the kingdom had turned a blind eye to large numbers of migrants crossing into the Spanish enclave of Ceuta on the Moroccan coast. For its part, Morocco has taken a hardline response to European qualms. Rabat's ambassador to Germany was even recalled after a public spat in May. A recent verdict from the European Court of Justice, meanwhile, excluded Sahrawi goods and fish from a Morocco trade deal with the EU, and that risks further straining relations. So how will this end? How will the conflict in Western Sahara affect Europe's relations with Morocco, perhaps other North African states, and where will it all end? What should Rabat's allies in Europe, particularly France and to some extent Spain, do to encourage the resumption of peace talks? Has Europe done enough to help prevent worsening violence? And is there actually much it can do? To discuss these questions and more, I'm joined by two exceptionally qualified people. First is our special guest, Intisar Fakir. Intisar is a senior fellow and director of the Middle East Institute's North Africa and Sahel program in Washington, D.C., She was previously a fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, where she was also editor of the platform SADA, or ECHO. She's also a regular host on MEI's own podcast, Middle East Focus, which I highly recommend for its concise, tightly edited episodes. Welcome, Intazar. Thank you for having me. We're also lucky to have with us the main contributor to our recent report, Relaunching Negotiations in Western Sahara, Ricardo Fabiani. Ricardo is Crisis Group's project director for North Africa. And he is a long-standing analyst of the region who previously worked for Eurasia Group, Energy Aspects, and other consultancies. Thanks so much for joining us, Ricardo. Thank you. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. So let's get started and first of all, work out what Western Sahara is. It's on the Atlantic coast of uh, Northwest Africa. And it, as I said, is the size of Britain. Huge place, very small population. 
into Sahara. You've actually been in Western Sahara. What's it like? Who lives there? What's changed in recent years? What's the direction of travel? Some people call it Africa's last colony, which sounds very grand in some ways. But uh, in reality, what, what does it uh, look like? So I've been to the uh, part of the Western Sahara that's under Morocco's de facto control, which is roughly about 85% of the territory. And the main administrative city there is called Layoun. And it's really, it's a sort of an interesting juxtaposition of significant urbanization efforts that are really dating back to the mid-90s, late 90s, and 2000s, and basically huge expanse of desert. Initially, the idea there was that it was kind of an area that supported Morocco's military outposts you know, the main areas from which Morocco had in the 80s and until 1991, when the ceasefire agreement had been put together, those were the areas that were supporting Morocco's military engagement there. And it's kind of grown and really just kind of taken on a life of its own as essentially another Moroccan urban center, or that's how the Moroccan government frames it. They consider this their um, southern provinces And they've poured huge amounts of money into building a substantial urban city. And it's not just the city. There's also a huge region. There's also Dakhla, which is um, closer to the water. There's a lot of tourism. There's a lot of um, efforts to really build these big infrastructure and really try to figure out a way to connect it much more substantially to the rest of Morocco. And when you're there, can you meet Sahrawis easily? And are they a majority of the population still? Yeah, so you can meet Sahrawis there. I don't know if they are a majority of the population. My understanding is that the majority of the population are people that have come from sort of the interior of Morocco, again, as part of efforts to settle the area. But there is a lot of Sahrawis there. You can meet with them. The majority, I think, of the Sahrawis that you would meet with are the ones that accept and, you know, support and want Moroccan rule. So they're essentially, they think of themselves as they are Moroccan citizens. And, and that's those are the majority of the people that you tend to meet with. You don't generally go to the Western Sahara to meet with people who are against Moroccan control. That That tends to happen. You sort of almost have to go outside of the country in order to hear more dissenting voices. And what about the refugee population, Ricardo, that lives in Algeria across the very small part of the border that is shared with Algeria? What sort of position are they in these days? There's a lot of um, enthusiasm, I would say, for uh, the resumption of uh, hostilities between Morocco and the Polisario. There's a, you know, when we talk about the refugee population, we're talking about an overwhelmingly young population. Many of these people have actually managed to travel abroad, to study abroad in places like Spain and Cuba. Many, of of course, study in Algerian universities. And these are people who have become, I would say, very frustrated with the situation in the refugee camps, Uh, even from a purely socioeconomic perspective, the lack of jobs and the difficult conditions and the lack of often of medicines and sufficient food uh, to feed the families that are Hindu refugee camps, but they're also fed up with the diplomatic stalemate around Western Sahara, with the lack of progress in the negotiations, or uh, obviously, particularly with the fact that the original UN plan for a referendum on independence in Western Sahara never 
took place never uh, was never uh, implemented. So these people are frustrated with all of this, but they are now enthusiastic and, and supportive of the fact that there is war and the Polisario has decided to go back to its weapons and to fight Morocco. And they think, many of these people, that this is the way to go, that this is the only way to change all of this. Ricardo, hasn't the, the balance of power shifted against them markedly since the ceasefire in 1991? I mean, surely they have far less access to weaponry, uh, far less access to international supply routes. I mean, how can they possibly th feel that they're able to take on such a regional power like Morocco? You're absolutely correct. The balance of power has actually shifted against the Polisario, against you know, the perception of the refugees that the referendum independence is the way forward, is the solution. But this has actually only made them more, I would say, angry and frustrated with the status quo. This gradual shift in favor of Morocco has actually led many of Sahrawis in the refugee camps to rethink uh, about the past 30 years of diplomatic efforts and to consider the 1991 ceasefire and the decision to actually lay down the weapons and uh, enter negotiations with Morocco as the strategic mistake that led to this situation. So their understanding and their interpretation is that if they hadn't accepted a ceasefire with Morocco, now they wouldn't be in the situation where they have to basically uh, accept the fact that Morocco is the dominant political diplomatic power in this conflict. And that's what they want to change by going back to war. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. Desai, you've heard how Morocco and uh, seems to be in hold the strongest hand here, but it also seems to be the one that's pushing things a bit in the Western Sahara, it seems to be playing hardball. Is this because it sees uh, an international opportunity at the moment? Is it uh, suddenly getting really useful help from regional countries that it's now close to, like Israel or Turkey? Or is there something about the Western Sahara, which is the extension of a domestic political dynamic that it needs to satisfy? So in terms of Morocco playing hardball, I think we maybe tend to forget that when it comes to the Western Sahara, Morocco always responds kind of forcefully, really. I would say that that's, it's just the way that they've always approached um, this issue. It's a major issue for them in terms of how um, they interact with their foreign uh, partners. Of course, I think the recognition that they've received from the uh, Trump administration in December, that's really been kind of a, a major boost for them. I mean, this is, I think, probably the single most recognition that they've always sought. Morocco has always wanted to have the U.S. on its side um, in terms of this issue. But I think there's also a, a good deal of frustration, as sort of a friend of mine generally puts it, is that the U.S. recognition of Morocco's sovereignty um, uh, over the Western Sahara was this kind of like big wedding and then nobody really showed up from the European partners. And I think Morocco is very frustrated by that. I think, it, you know, in part, that's that might explain why uh, Morocco has been responding the way that they have. But I would say um, they've also historically been pretty uh pretty sort of reactive and, and kind of strong-nosed in how they approach um, anything that they see as affecting this issue. So the Europeans didn't turn up to the wedding, but uh, other regional states are, are helping out pretty handily, aren't they? I mean, is this a new factor in the Western Sahara question, the way that Morocco can turn to new friends like Israel and Turkey? 
Yeah, I mean, I think in general, Morocco has been trying to pursue new partnerships and stronger partnerships so that it can build um, support outside of the EU. And it's done that at the African Union, as we have seen for several years since 2016, since it joined. A number of African countries have either reversed their recognition of the um, Sahrawi Republic or have at least given Morocco a sense that they're willing to move past this Western Sahara issue, which is very divisive in the African continent. The same thing with Israel. I think Morocco is really putting a lot of stock in its new relationship with Israel in terms of shielding them from international criticism, really sort of supporting some of their positions, diplomatic positions and so forth. But I also think, you know, for Morocco, really, they can try to build these relationships, but their relationship with the EU and their EU partner remains very, very important. And I think that in addition, of course, to the Western Sahara issue, there is a lot of general frustration that they don't have the kind of equitable relationship with the EU that they want. And they feel that given the kind of support and usefulness that they have for the EU, that the EU ought to be a lot more supportive of Morocco in general, and in particular in terms of the Western Sahara question. But if Morocco wants to make nice with the EU, Ricardo, what, why open that kind of floodgate of emotions that they must have known would result from allowing thousands of people to storm the fences of its uh, enclave in northern Morocco, Ceuta, which put TV images all across Europe instantly that could only have really aggravated relationships. What did Morocco get out of that, do you think, Ricardo? Well, I think the best way to describe the relationship between Morocco and the EU is that this is a marriage of interests. This is not necessarily a relationship based on shared values, or at least not entirely based on shared values. And there is a lot of, in terms of interest, that the EU and the Moroccans obviously share. And uh, the sending a signal on migration is usually the best way to make sure that the Europeans uh, start paying attention uh, to what you have to say and uh, what your requests, what your demands are. And I think what happened between Spain and Morocco was actually a very effective case uh, of uh, the Europeans initially obviously reacting very negatively to what happened in Ceuta, but then later adjusting their position and basically effectively accepting or uh, making sure that the Moroccan demands uh, were at least partly met. And we saw that when then the Spanish prime minister, for a government reshuffle that took place uh, some time after, removed the foreign affairs minister who was at the center of that crisis and replaced her with a more, at least allegedly, I would say, pro-Moroccan personality. So at the end of the day, actually, that was a very strong signal by Morocco that, uh, yes, triggered a a harsh reaction initially, but uh, I would say it's uh, obtained exactly what Rabat wanted. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. We are talking about Western Sahara with Intisar Fakir and Ricardo Fabiani. We've just heard how Morocco actually got partly what it wanted by threatening Spain and the Spanish enclave with uh, at least images of refugees at Europe's gates again. And so it seems that Morocco sees its hardball tactics paying off. Intisar, do you think that uh, Morocco is right, that one day if they just keep this up, uh, Spain and the rest of them will just recognize Moroccan sovereignty over Western Sahara, just like the United States has done? I don't. I think 
maybe for Spain particularly, and I think this also goes for um, other EU countries, I think Morocco recognizes that this is, it's not necessarily going to mean that if they continue to put this kind of pressure, that somehow that's going to change the EU's perspective. I think the idea is to make sure that there are no significant losses or that Morocco's position is not sort of pushed back in any way. So I think, you know, Morocco can try to kind of put pressure on Spain and France and so forth. But I don't think the end goal is to get those at least immediately to kind of change their position, but mostly to make sure that they continue to support Morocco in the same way that they have. And if there is anything that indicates that that could change, then I think we generally sort of see Morocco reacting the way that it did. Because if you look at this, the issue of Spain, I mean, Morocco reacted very strongly because they'd found out that Spain was planning to have Ibrahim Ghali, who is um, the president of the uh, Sahrawi Republic, come in for treatment. I don't think Spain had told Morocco that this was going to happen. And I really, I think Morocco sort of perceived that as a betrayal by sort of, you know, a traditional friend and supporter and someone with whom they have very strong ties. So I think these kind of things really um, drive Morocco to sort of react very strongly. Do they want Spain and France and ultimately also the EU to change their position? Of course. But I think also they understand that there is sort of a, a short term kind of immediate sort of effect that maybe is more important than the long term uh, of having these countries reverse their position. Got it. And uh, what if we look at it from the European perspective a bit, uh, Ricardo, uh, say France, which has always been the premier supporter of Morocco through the decades of conflict and tension in Western Sahara. France, however, has not followed the United States' recognition of Moroccan sovereignty. It doesn't appear to be completely in the Moroccan corner. Why is it holding back? Why is that? Well, when you talk with French officials, they are usually very, I would say, clear about this. Yes, they support uh, the Moroccan position on this conflict, particularly the proposed solution, the autonomy plan for the Western Saharan conflict. But they are also one of the key international actors due to their position at the UN Security Council. And they cannot take necessarily a position that contradicts completely international law and that could create repercussions and problems for French foreign policy, potentially in other fields, in other situations. France is very happy, obviously, to continue to support Morocco and the Moroccan solution, but that doesn't mean that they're ready to go against international law on this one. And of course, uh, this is a very almost convenient position for Paris because there is somebody else who's, uh, you know, doing the dirty work, if we can say it that way. Somebody else, uh, obviously, namely the US, who's taken this very clear pro-Moroccan position. And that allows France to say, yes, the solution is the autonomy plan, but look at us. We are not that extreme and radical. We are taking a sort of middle-of-the-way position on the conflict. And that's a big advantage for France, given that the perception in general is that Paris is very much on the Moroccan side in this conflict. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. Fair enough. Middle of the way goes so far, but uh, the European Court of Justice has just come out with a 
ruling, which says that uh, goods from Western Sahara, like uh, phosphates and fish and so forth, cannot be part of a Moroccan trade deal with the EU, which is a pretty big blow to Morocco. Uh, it puts Morocco into the same basket as Israel with its uh, occupied Palestinian territories, for instance. Our new crisis group report about relaunching the negotiations uh, calls the EU position rather timid, but this seems to be a forceful response. What do you think the impact will be uh, in Tassar? It's a little bit difficult to tell just yet what the impact of this ruling is going to be because we've gone through a similar ruling back in 2015 and I think 2016 where the question had come up again. And the way that I've sort of come to read the ruling is that there hasn't been sufficient consultation from the Sahrawi people to kind of determine whether these the goods that are extracted from the territory can be a part of this um, agreement. And so what happened um, after 2015 is that there was an appeal and there were some steps that were taken to ensure that the gains that Morocco would make from those are spent in support of Sahrawi people. So, you know, we might see another similar um, situation. But I think what's interesting to note here, and as we talk about Morocco's sort of a hard-nosed approach, is the way that Morocco has reacted to this ruling compared to the way that they reacted to the 2015 ruling. There was a real diplomatic crisis that followed then, with the EU, there was already an, a diplomatic crisis kind of brewing with France. This time we see a much more kind of even-handed, sort of calmer approach. And I think that goes back a little bit to what we had seen over the summer with Morocco really kicking up a lot of dust and angering the EU. And I think there is really here an effort to sort of say, we trust in our European partners and we will see how the process resolves itself. I think there is a little bit of sort of a positive precedent for them, at least for the Moroccan government, from the 2015 ruling. So I think the expectation is that if they don't react in a way that could anger European institutions and that could kind of galvanize Europe against Morocco, then there is a chance that things might work out. Um, in a positive way, the way that they did after 2015. Perhaps Morocco feels that it's already on the winning side. Uh, you're there in D.C. And, decide, uh, and we have a new administration in the United States. They've inherited a quite uh, salient position from a Trump administration recognizing the sovereignty of Morocco in the Western Sahara. But up till now, the new Biden administration has been silent on whether they will maintain this position. Uh, what do you make of that? Do you hear anything of any change or will America just carry on the same course that it, uh, it's, it's been on since then? I mean, this administration was really put in a very difficult situation because I think prior their position was quite similar to what Ricardo was describing in terms of France's position. You know, they support Morocco's um, autonomy proposal, but they also can't really sort of tip the balance too much one way or the other, given that they are part of the you know international apparatus within which this question is supposed to be resolved and adjudicated. But of course, the Trump administration completely, in a very sort of Trump fashion, they sort of went and did something without any regard to um, norms. And that created an issue for this administration because 
They can't just come and reverse their position. That would create huge issues with Morocco. It also creates a lot of questions about what happens to other territories that you know were recognized under the Trump um, administration, for example, the Golan. Uh, but also, this administration, I think, has given signals to Morocco that they're not planning to reverse their position. I don't think that they have kind of said that openly, but Morocco is very much operating on the assumption that they're not going to reverse their position. But at the same time, at the UN, they have to kind of try to push Morocco a little bit to make sure that Morocco re-engages in the negotiation process. Because at this stage, really, given everything that we've talked about with you know regional gains and geopolitical gains that Morocco has made over the past few years, there's very little incentive for Morocco to actually compromise on this issue or even to come to the negotiating table because the status quo works for it. So it's quite a tough position for the U.S. administration right now. It looks like sort of game set and match to Morocco in some ways. Um, but uh, Ricardo, you've been leading efforts in crisis group to try and find a way of coming to a compromise solution. We have a new report on relaunching the negotiations. Uh, how did you manage to find a way? It sounds like the Sahrawis are kind of powerless. The regional powers are increasingly dominant. The Europeans are ambivalent and rather scared of Morocco by the feel of it. We now have a new UN envoy just chosen. Is it a good omen that he has previously worked in Syria, Iraq, and Afghanistan? Can he really bring hope to this new task? Well, I think what was needed was really new UN envoy with a reputation and a and a gravitas almost, like a weight that he could apply on both sides. Any other any diplomat uh, would not have been, uh, I would say, sufficient or enough really to try and tackle this issue. So the fact that uh, there is Demisura who has been working on all these other crises was a little bit of a star almost within UN circles is actually a very positive uh, signal. It means that finally, after all this time, the international community, the external powers, the UN are starting to pay a little bit of attention to this conflict, or at least they're trying to send a signal that they care about this conflict that has been running for so long with no solution in place and for the past two years without any uh, diplomatic process uh, really to deal with it. That said, of course, there is a lot more that needs to take place. You know, there is obviously uh, the UN Security Council that needs to weigh on this issue and needs to send, again, a very clear message that they want to discuss it, they want to continue to put pressure uh, on both sides. So the Mistura is a good first step, but there are other steps that still need to, to happen before we can say that Finally, there is a new process in place and we can convince both the Polisario and Morocco that diplomacy is better than uh, fighting. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. A small light at the end of the tunnel then. We're out of time, uh, but thank you so much for an extremely revealing conversation about Western Sahara, which I've certainly learned lots of new perspectives. And uh, I certainly hope that uh, the confluence of interests around Western Sahara will bring some relief to that conflict there. Thank you so much, Intisar, for joining us today from Washington. Thanks for having me. Uh, and a big thanks to you too, Ricardo, for a great conversation. Thank you.
Well, dear listeners, I hope you learned as much as I have. Uh, for more insights, you can follow Indisar and Ricardo on Twitter at Indisar Fakir and Ricardo is at Rick Fabiani. And you can see these on the program notes. And do check out Indisar's work on Middle East Institute's platform. And Ricardo just has an op-ed out on Western Sahara in World Politics Review, which is well worth a read. Make sure to check out Crisis Group's recent report on our website crisisgroup.org. Uh, that's relaunching negotiations in Western Sahara. And you should also follow at Crisis Group on Twitter. And I'm at Hugh Pope. Also check Crisis Group out on Facebook and Instagram. Feel free to tweet at us, write to us by email, podcasts at crisisgroup.org. And if you'd like to have topics or suggestions for guests, please do tell us about it. And if you're listening on a podcast platform, we do love it if you could leave us a rating and a review. War and Peace is a partner in a network of podcasts about Europe. Check Europod for some of the others. And a big thanks to producer Bull Media and to our assistant Finn Dunbar-Jones, who gets us to the starting line each fortnight. But the biggest thanks, as always, goes to you, our listeners. And we are both, Ollie and I, are looking forward to chatting with you again in two weeks' time. Thank you and goodbye. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group.